Hello, I'm Alex Bellinger, and this is Small Biz Pod on Thursday, the 26th of May. Coming up in today's show, I talk to internet entrepreneur Amanda Zeidevelt about her experiences of setting up an online business, including advice for anyone looking to market their own business over the internet. Uh, there's also some analysis and interviews around the recent, recent announcement that the banks have promised to make electronic payments on the same day, uh, rather than sitting on them for three days to accrue interest. Uh, this and check clearing are, are big issues for small businesses across the UK, and uh, it's interesting to hear how the banks and others are responding to the announcement. I'd also say we've got a jam-packed show today, so uh, I'm going to get on with it a bit at the, on the intro section and move straight on into uh, some comments. One comment this week from Glenn Watson, who you'll remember I interviewed on Small Biz Pod number one. Uh, Glenn says, were you aware of the rumours that iTunes 4.9 will have a dedicated podcasting genre? and podcasting syndication features. Thought that it might make an interesting news item for your next podcast. Keep them coming. They're sounding better each time. So thanks very much, Glenn, for that. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, I, I had seen some reports on Steve Jobs' move into podcast syndication. Um, when companies like Apple sit up and take notice, there's, there's clearly something going on. Uh, although I know there's also been some speculation on the selection criteria for podcasts included in iTunes. Um, I'll put some links up in the show notes for anyone who'd like to follow the story. Uh, The the future of podcasting and and what it might or or might not become is obviously a big topic, and I think one of these days uh, I'll have to schedule it as a theme to be covered in Small Biz Pod, simply because I think the format may actually have some uh, very useful and effective implications for small business communication and marketing. Uh, but let's save that for another day. As I say, we've got a, a packed show today. Um, I also try and avoid uh, the usual uh, fault of podcasters. Well, not really fault, but podcasters tend to spend a lot of uh, time talking on their shows about podcasting. And I know this is very much a, a show dedicated to small business, but where podcasting does have a, an impact and a potential benefit uh, to businesses of all sizes, I think it probably does merit uh, the inclusion of some, some news items and some analysis further down the line. So, as ever, if you have any comments, please email them to alex at smallbizpod.co.uk or use the comment section on the Small Biz Pod blog. Um, also, if any listeners or anyone else out there, for that matter, would like to chat with me over Skype, um, my Skype address to look out for or to look up is alex-smallbizpod, S-M-A-L-L-B-I-Z-P-O-D. So if you do a search for me on Skype, uh, I would be more than happy to have a chat with you on anything you like, really. Um, podcasting, small business, PR, marketing, whatever you like. Um, do do give me a buzz, uh, as ever. Uh, feedback really is much appreciated. Talking of feedback, uh, my question on uh, how many small businesses in the UK out there were actually using a blog or blogging at the moment uh, receives a deathly silence so uh, I'm inclined to believe there are only the two that I know of but we'll see um, so do do let me know if you are a small business blogger and then perhaps we could have you on the show okay during the heady days of the dot-com boom investors were rolling over themselves to dish out big money to inter- internet entrepreneurs who to be honest had 
pretty flaky business models, only to find that money evaporate when the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, but arguably, the dot-com bubble was a good thing. Uh, it certainly made investors and entrepreneurs look much more closely at how an online business could generate revenue and whether, if it was built, customers w- really would come. So things have definitely moved on, and there are plenty of examples of businesses now that make a decent profit online. Uh, consumers are much more willing to spend, and indeed advertisers appear to be much more willing to advertise. Uh, recent statistics show that 22 million UK consumers spent uh, an incredible $1.4 billion online uh, in April this year alone. So in addition, um, advertisers now spend more each year, something like £653 million a year, um, on internet advertising, that, which is more than uh, they do on traditional radio, for example. So things are definitely moving in the right direction. And um, one of the new breed of uh, business-savvy internet entrepreneurs out there today is Amanda Zeiderfeld, who is about to launch StyleBible.com, a site dedicated to fashion, beauty, and uh, lifestyles. Uh, So, Amanda, welcome to Small Biz Pod. Thank you very much. Um, Let's sort of begin at the beginning and just ask a little bit about uh, about you. I mean, who is Amanda Zeiderfeld, and, uh, and what's your background? Um, well, I lived and worked in five European countries. I had the chance to go to university and being a linguist decided that I would probably get a lot more benefit from going to live and work in the countries where I spoke the language to gain native fluency. So I started out my travels in France and Spain and Portugal, where I was the editor of a lifestyle and property magazine. And I used to deal with all their media, like their website, any of their offline advertising and so forth, before deciding to come back to the UK and pursue a career within the internet. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about um, Style Bible and, and who you see as the primary users of the site. Well, Style Bible is like a cross between an upmarket publication and an online concierge service. It's divided into four categories. So you have travel, which covers boutique hotels, lifestyle, which covers bars, restaurants and clubs, Beauty, which covers cosmetic retailers, um, cosmetic uh, retailers, spas and salons, and the fashion is designers, um, department stores, vintage stores, and that kind of thing. So it's very much a sort of insider guide. We don't list lots and lots of places. We list only the sort of very best in the cities that we select. So all the places that we feature are editorial-based rather than advertorial-based. Mm-hmm. And everywhere that's on, every place that's actually on the site, we've either eaten, slept, drunk at, been pampered at, and all the actual reviews of these places are very much first-hand experiences. Um, for the users that join Star Bible, they then receive a membership card, and this is where the online concierge section kicks in. Okay. Because the various establishments that are featured on the site then give our users or our members special offers. So that could be a room upgrade in a hotel, it could be a cocktail on arrival at dinner, it could be a discount on being pampered. And that's very much where the Star Bible sort of membership sort of pays for itself. Because although we're not like a traditional concierge service where you can phone somebody up and they'll book it for you, mm-hmm. we arm people, we arm our members with all the information they need to get on the right guest list, to know when the sample sales are on and where to go to claim all of these benefits. 
in terms of the people who use the site, I'd say that our audience is very much sort of ABC1, that being sort of upwardly mobile, medium to high disposable incomes between the ages of 24 and 40, and people who kind of, A, enjoy travelling in other cities apart from their own, and B, that people that socialise in their own cities and are looking for somewhere different to go from the, new, the usual places that they hang out. So it's not it's not a a site for the um, for the A list or super exclusive. It's uh, it's an aspirational site as well, is it? I suppose to a degree it's both. You know that you know if you are an A list, you've got you know you will a know most of these places. B your PR companies and your PAs will arrange you to get on all of those guest lists. For the sort of for us normal mere mortals, yeah. it's not as easy to get onto these lists. And sometimes it's very hard knowing where to go. You know, if you live in London, you know the places that you tend to hang out. But if you suddenly go to New York or you go to Paris, suddenly you're in a strange city and you want to make the most of, A, your time off, and B, the money that you're spending while you're there. So we effectively give you a list of all the great places to go while you're there and the information to ensure that you can actually go and enjoy them without sort of meeting some gruff doorman that won't let you in. So if you're a wannabe it girl, the Style Bible's the site to go to. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But I guess it's not just for girls. You know, we have yeah. some great places for men, men's grooming places, some cigar clubs, places that, you know, men's pampering are certainly becoming... Um, more and more in the press, certainly with all the sort of the nuts and all those types of publications, they're all featuring men's grooming, and we certainly had a good selection of those. And the other thing I suppose to say about Starbucks, it's not just really, really expensive places. It's not just for those on a champagne budget. There's some fantastic hidden gems in there. Yeah. Um, and we've got a cafe on the, we've got a cafe in Notting Hill that sells custard cakes for 75p. I mean, you certainly don't need to be <laughs> a millionaire to be able to afford those. But they are the best custard cakes you will ever, ever have. I promise you. Fantastic. You're making me feel hungry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, obviously, you put in a lot of research uh, i know you've got how many how many um staff have you got uh, working on the site 12 now it's 12. growing it's certainly growing it started off with a very small team um and the research has been fabulous fun i mean the research was actually four years in production before the site went live which is an incredible amount of time to work on something before you can actually see it there up live on the internet yeah so um, it sounds like a tough job that somebody's got to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? It's a fabulous job. But there are sometimes that people say to me, oh, God, yeah, you've got such a great job. And you know, if I come back from New York or from Paris or wherever and people sort of say, oh, you know, sounds like you've got a really hard life. In actual fact, sometimes it is because it is incredibly tiring getting around all of these places. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely fabulous staying in nice hotels and sort of going to brilliant clubs and shopping and getting pampered. But there is um, an awful lot of work that goes into it. It's not all fun. And are you troughing on the pounds eating all the, in all these posh restaurants? Yeah, and that's a slight problem. I think it's more the alcohol more than anything. Right. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Well, it's, it sound, sounds fascinating. Um, but it, it does make me think you must have spent a fortune um, going to all of these places. Presumably they don't. Um, you're not getting free tickets, invites, food and everything no, as yet. No, I mean... When, I, when we first decided to set the project up, one of the things that, you know, one of the things that I kind of believe was that in order to, to set the project, we needed to do the groundwork. I, I had a great idea, and I had the opportunity to go to a VC if I wanted to, to go and get funding. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was set it up in such a way so that it was up and running, and we had a good product, and that we could get people using it, and we could get feedback, 
and to consolidate that idea before we went out and then tried to find funding. In order to sort of set Star Bible up, I set up a design agency called Strategic Design, and we built websites for various companies in across sort of a multitude of sectors, mm-hmm. including sort of retail. We did the Gina Shoes website. We did casting, which was Mad Dog, right to the other end of the scale, where we did a payroll company, um, which was so different from Shoes, I can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but what we then did was, having built almost 50 websites, we took the profits that Strategic Design made, and we then poured that into Style Bible. Um, And the other good thing was that obviously having a design agency meant that we had programmers, we had copywriters, we had designers, and it basically allowed us to build that website at cost. So yes, we did spend, I mean, we we spent nearly £100,000 building it, doing the research and putting it all together. But effectively, the first company that I set up funded it. And we're now in a situation where it's up, it's running, we've got great feedback, we've got well over a thousand members purely through word of mouth, and we haven't even launched yet. So from that point of view, now we're looking at, well, now we've finished the business plan, and now we're going for funding. Okay. And it puts us in a much stronger position because we've already got a product. Yeah, I mean, I think so, so different to, as I said earlier, the, the, the business models of entrepreneur, internet entrepreneurs uh, who uh, were looking for funding during the dot-com boom era. I suppose you could be described almost as a sort of serial entrepreneur uh, and somebody who is very aware of bootstrapping. I don't know whether you're uh, familiar with the phrase, Amanda, but uh, reinvesting money you've already made, making sure that you're not borrowing huge sums at the beginning. So so setting up a business with with money that's already there, bootstrapping, as it were, is uh, quite important. And it's worked for us really well. I mean, we had a, we've set up, we have another e-commerce site that was, um, it's a recruitment site for working in ski resorts called Ski Connection. And all of the, all of the profits that have come out of those companies have gone into sort of building Star Rival because the days of people like Boo.com who spent £118 million in 18 months are gone. Yeah. And we are very, very conservative with our money. You know, we have produced a fabulous looking site that's got some really great content on it. But we haven't sort of, you know, we haven't spent money that wasn't that didn't need to be spent like so many did you know when we go to meetings we get the bus yeah or we get the tube you know we don't get cabs and we don't fly in private planes to get there Mm. which i think was sort of very synonymous with the early days when sort of money was being spent left right and center so how do you anticipate style bible actually generating revenue further down the line Star Bible will generate, will generate revenue in numerous ways. The first way is it runs on a subscription model. Um, so initially, when you join the site, you will pay a yearly subscription fee, which at the moment is free of charge because we're still, not, we're still in our beta launch. Mm-hmm. Um, once we launch officially in June after the launch party, which is being held in London, we will then charge an introductory fee of £10 for the first three months. And then after that, £25. So it would be £25 per year to subscribe, which effectively will pay for itself if you use the site. I mean, for example, if you were to go to one of the, I don't know, Gina Shoes sample sales, and you buy a pair of shoes that should be £400 for sort of 50 or 60 you've instantly got your money back. In the same way that if you take up one of the special offers on our hotels, for example, and you get a bottle of champagne on arrival, that's your subscription paid for. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it will drive revenue through the subscriptions through volume. Um, we, in, we anticipate having 15,000 users at the end of year one, increasing to 45,000 users by the end of year three. 
We're not massive fans of advertising. Um, I don't know about how anybody else feels, but pop-ups just drive me insane. Yeah, absolutely. Desperately trying to read about a hotel and suddenly you've got a, <laughs> an advert in your face that yeah. just won't go away and is obscuring your text. So we have a complete ban on them. Yeah. There is some small amount of advertising on the site. We work with some partners, especially the ones that are sort of sponsoring our launch party. And we also do newsletters to all of our members that highlight the special offers, the sample sales, and any new bits and pieces that we find that we've added to the site. And within the newsletters, we will also charge, we will also offer advertising. So effectively, the site will mainly make its money through subscriptions and advertising. Okay, uh, sounds like a, a good, viable, and indeed uh, potentially very successful model. Um, yeah, and effectively, if we get, you know, if we're looking for volume of subscribers, and one of the great things about when you do have that volume of subscribers is it gives us more pulling power to be able to negotiate better deals and better special offers. You know, there's a lot of traditional concierge services out there that are extremely expensive to join, and there's a big element of over-promise and under-deliver, mm -hmm. which is where Starbible, I think, sort of breaks those barriers, because... The, a, the membership pays for itself, and B, the more subscribers we have, the better offers that we can give our members. Yeah. Obviously, getting uh, subscriber numbers up is uh, a, a, big, a big objective for, for any yes, site like, like yours. Um, and indeed, for any online business, getting visitors, getting hits, unique visitors to the site is, is key if it's going to be a successful business venture. Um, do you have any sort of tips, tricks, or advice for... Any listeners that have uh, a site or that are thinking of setting up an online business on how to market your website effectively? Well, there's, um, there's this guy in the States called Seth Gordon, who to me is a marketing guru. He yep. is, produces some amazing books, and one of which is called Purple Cow. I would advise anybody to read that. And his theory is that if you were to drive down the road and you were to see a brown cow, you wouldn't look at it twice. But if you were to drive down the road and you were to see a purple cow, not only would you probably stop and look, the chances are you'd go to the pub and tell all your mates you saw a purple cow that afternoon. Yeah. And that is effectively what I would sort of suggest at any site. You know, your content has to be good. It's got to be good enough that somebody is wild enough to go home, go to the pub, tell their friends and tell their family they found this fantastic website. Yeah. Um, because at the moment, I think, you know, we see an average of 3,000 adverts a day just from getting up in the morning to going to bed. And sort of advertising is so noisy these days that most people don't actually notice the adverts that are right in front of them. And what is sort of proving to do really well is, is having good content. So firstly, the content that you offer within your site or the model or the service or the product really needs to have a unique selling point. It really needs to stand out. Yeah. The second thing is, is that I believe that search engine marketing is probably one of the best investments that you can make. Not necessarily through pay-per-click, although that does work, but through the natural rankings that you can get. You know, if you can get to the top of Google or AltaVista based on keywords that people will find you on, mm -hmm. you are actually getting an audience of people that are looking for the product or service that you are already offering. Yeah. And that could put you in a very strong position. Search engine marketing is, is relatively easy. I mean, it's not an exact science, but there are some great websites out there if you, know, if you can't afford a big agency. I mean, things like searchenginewatch.com, spiderfood.net, you know, they will sort of verse you on what's really important about how to get to the top of the search engines. And that's well worth a read because it's a very cost-effective way of, of you know, gaining subscribers or gaining sort of more traffic. 
Okay, great stuff. That's uh, useful advice. So how would you describe uh, Style Bible's Purple Cow? Style Bible's Purple Cow comes across in two ways, or three ways, I'd say. One, that your membership pays for it yourself, so it's a real value-added service. Secondly, it's always up to date. You know, you go out and buy a publication for one city at £25, and the chances are by the time it's hit the shelves, it's already, you know, it's already out of date. Whereas being an online being an online service, you know, if somewhere shuts down, we shut the page of that site down. And conversely, if some new hotspot opens, yeah. you know, we're the first to be able to review it and add it to the site. Um, and lastly, you know, because of the fact that we do compete with traditional concierge services, we don't do what so many of them do, which is over-promise and under-deliver. Okay, good stuff. So finally, um, if I were going out to dinner this evening, um, where should I go and what should I be wearing? Ooh, um, there's a great new restaurant. Uh, it's a Conran restaurant, which is called La Floridita at 100 Wardour Street, Okay. Um, which is Cuban and they have live music and the food is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'd also highly recommend Roka, which I recently did in a review, which is a Japanese restaurant in Charlotte Street, and it's a sister restaurant to, to Zuma. Okay. Uh, it's very trendy, but it's not quite as expensive as Zuma, but the food and the atmosphere is just as good. Um, in terms of what you should wear, oh, God, there's loads of great little <laughs> things at the moment. Um, I suppose Missoni is always a very popular choice. Um, Although, if your budget doesn't stretch to the big designer labels, you know, Topshop offer a styling service where you can go in and they will completely style you and you can spend everything from £100 or £50 right up to sort of much, much more. The terms of bags, what bags would you carry? The new Fendi Spy bag is absolutely fantastic and we're loving Jane's jeans at the moment. Okay. They minimise your bum. And if you eat as many, <laughs> you eat as many meals as we do on reviews, that's always a good thing. Superb. Uh, anything that doesn't make my bum look big in this has got to be good. Okay. <laughs> um, Amanda, very many thanks for coming on the show. And uh, good luck with the launch, which is in June. Is that right? The launch, yeah. We're holding the launch at um, a very exclusive venue in um, Kensington. We're not allowed to release it just yet. It's on the 29th of June. We've got quite a few of the big magazines covering it, so it should be a fantastic night. Good stuff. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this week, as I said, we've got a lot to pack into the show. Uh, I thought for a change we would take a look at one of the big news stories for small businesses of the week and analyse them in a little bit more depth. Uh, call in a few different interviewees to explain their point of view on the particular topic. And uh, the story that struck me uh, this week that is, I know, of major importance to small businesses and uh, medium-sized businesses across the UK is the question of the speed of check clearing and indeed the speed of electronic payments. Uh, banking, always a controversial issue. So uh, I thought we'd take a, a closer look. Okay, so some good news for UK small businesses this week, and everyone else for that matter. Um, the Payment Systems Task Force, which is chaired by the Office of Fair Trading, has secured agreement from the UK's major banks to speed up electronic payments made over the phone, internet, or by standing order. And so money will therefore transfer between accounts on the same day or, or the, the following day at the latest, rather than the three days that business customers currently have to wait. 
but business and personal customers of the banks will have to wait until at least 2007 before changes are expected to be implemented. Now, uh, I'm pleased to welcome to the show today David Bishop of the Federation of Small Businesses, who also, I believe, sits on the uh, task force chaired by the OFT. Um, David, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. Um, what is your reaction to uh, the timescale uh, of the implementation of this faster payment system? Well, the the news itself is welcome, and uh, the changes have been a long time coming. Um, and the banking industry tell us that it's all extremely complicated and that they need two years to uh, implement the changes. And to be honest, um, at, at present, we are prepared to um, take them at their word on this. Uh, but I think uh, Britain's four million businesses uh, will not accept any further delay to the timetable that the banks themselves uh, have imposed. So I think if by the end of this year, uh, the banks have given us a good understanding of exactly what they intend to do, and uh, there is a timetable in place, so that is delivered in 2007, um, then we will continue to support the work of the Payment Assistance Task Force. Um, but uh, the proviso there is that there is no further stalling and that this system is in place and running uh, by autumn 2007 at the very latest. Because, of course, in the interim, banks are making money out of people's electronic transactions, aren't they, due to um, collecting interest accrued on what's commonly known as the float? You're absolutely right, and uh, it, it really is unacceptable that, that um, uh, in the 21st century, uh, when you press a button on your PC and the money leaves your account, it doesn't actually arrive into the recipient's account until three days later. Um, and, and that's because the system is based on uh, a, a clearing process that was set up before a, a personal computer even existed. And I think what uh, FSB members find particularly galling is that the banks then have the opportunity to make three days interest um, on, on, on their money. Uh, and uh, the, the OFT estimate that's around £30 million pounds a year. Um, and uh, uh, that's been one of the reasons why we've campaigned for so long to see the system changed. Yeah. Of course, ironically, the, the check clearing system, uh, which does take three days also, uh, mm. but possibly with more justification as checks physically have to move around the country to reach mm. clearing centres and so on. Ironically, the, uh, there is no float on checks. Payments is, is transferred... Um, across uh, from payee to payer on, on the day that the, 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 the cheque arrives, as it were, uh, admittedly three days down the line. Uh, I notice that the FSB continues to lobby for a, a speeding up in the cheque clearing system. Mm. Um, what, is your, what are your thoughts, David, on how long it will take to get that system sorted? The announcement that was made this week will only affect around um, the uh, 1 million or so transactions that take place each day uh, over the internet, over the telephone or by standing order. Uh, by contrast, there are 6.5 million checks processed each day. Um, I think it was right that uh, the industry addressed um, the electronic side first because clearly um, that's the area of greatest growth in the future. Mm -hmm. But... Um, small businesses are still um, uh, very much wedded to checks and the processes in most 
businesses in this country are based around check runs once or twice a month um, to settle bills. Um, and that's why uh, we feel extremely strongly that it's vital that um, uh, the OFT and the banking industry now address the 6.5 million uh, checks uh, that are processed each day and the clearing system that, 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 that are used to process those checks. Of course, there's an argument that would suggest that the the fact that checks take three days to clear has a, an advantage, or it sort of swings and roundabouts, has a potential advantage to uh, small businesses in terms of cash flow in that they can sign the check and they've got, you know, they know they've got their money in their account for three days. Uh, are members really that irate about, about the check clearing process? Surely 50% of the time they win. I think they do win 50% of the time. And... Um uh, you, you shouldn't be surprised if entrepreneurs are going to use an inefficient system uh, to their benefit. Um, but I don't think that's any excuse for not actually improving that inefficient system in the first place. Um, and I actually think that if you look at the economy of, as a whole, improving the check clearing process uh, is far more important um, because it's startup businesses, it's those firms that are in financial distress uh, that um, uh, suffer the cash flow implications of a three-day clearing delay to checks. Uh, and uh, it's the, the, the principal reason, I think, uh, why small businesses do suffer as a result of the check clearing cycle. Um, so I agree with you. Uh, of course, businesses play the system. Uh, it's an inefficient system and it's there to be played. But I don't think that's any excuse for not upgrading that system for the benefits of UK PLC as a whole. OK, David Bishop, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you. OK, now the Swedish banking system is often held up as an example of a banking system that has uh, check and electronic payments sorted in terms of quick clearing. I'm delighted to welcome to the show to give us an insight into uh, the Swedish system, uh, Leif Trogum, who is uh, director of bank administration at the Swedish Bankers Association. Leif, welcome to the show. Perhaps you could start by explaining a little bit about uh, how the Swedish banking industry is structured because that may make a difference in terms of how you're able to deal with mm. check clearing and electronic payments. Yeah. Yes, uh, there are two main sectors of banking market in Sweden. First, the commercial banks, and then we have the mutually owned savings banks. And... Uh, the retail banking sector is very much uh, concentrated with four large commercial banks accounting actually more than 90% of the payment activities. Uh, and uh, so you can understand that four major banks is, is, has a very strong position. And besides, so then there are about 75 small savings banks. And, and there are actually a few other commercial banks as well. And in the total, there are 46 six commercial banks and 75 savings banks in Sweden in the, at, at the moment. Okay. I, I guess uh, for UK listeners, uh, most will know that uh, the four big banks in the UK control 80% of both the personal and commercial markets. So to that extent, I guess, the the concentration, although there are many, yeah. there is much yeah. more potentially much more choice in the UK, the yeah. concentration is still similar. Um, so... Uh, as we understand it, the checks, if they are paid into um, a Swedish bank account, are paid on the same day, something yeah. which is uh, 
incredible to believe for us poor UK small business owners. Um, how does the system work and why is it so fast? Yeah, uh, I mean, actually, we, we introduced the Czech truncation system in Sweden back in 1990, 1977, actually. And from that time, we have tried very hard to to reduce the number of checks, actually. I mean, from the start, it was uh, the goal was to, to settle uh, uh, a check in one day, mm-hmm. and that was a goal for, for that system. And after achieving that goal, the second goal was to try to find solutions to reduce the use of checks, actually. And uh, uh, last year, we had approximately a little bit less than 0.2 million checks mm-hmm. truncated in Sweden. And that's a very low figure because we had around 60 million checks a year in the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in terms of just practically, when a check gets paid into an account, yeah. um, it clears at what point during the day? It will be cleared in just a few hours, between three and four hours. Uh, between uh, the, the the banks that are actually involved in the tra- in the transaction. Okay, and so has the Swede have Swedish banks invested uh, a certain amount of money in technology to allow that to happen? Uh, as you probably know, the the checks actually have to be put in a van and transferred across the UK to a check yeah. uh, clearing centre. Uh, and processed, and which is partly why it takes such a long time. Mm. How have the the Swedish banks got around that process? Actually, we don't do that. I mean, the receiving banks will handle the check, and will and the, the check will be there uh, e- even afterwards. Because if if the authorities would have knowledge of where the check is, uh, there is at the receiving side. In, in, in the market, so right. there would be no no uh, transfer physically of checks between be, be, between the banks. Okay. So the so, so the issuing bank's check will be handled, and it would be uh, uh, it, it would be handled by the receiving bank, and the receiving bank will take care of it even even in the future. Yeah. So in essence, um, checks clear as quickly as electronic payments. Yeah. 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 And the circle is three to four hours. Now, as I understand it, uh, Leif, uh, the Swedish uh, consumers and businesses have got very used to electronic payments. And in fact, uh, checks are more or less, haven't quite disappeared from the yeah. UK, from, from the Swedish from, banking system. But from the Swedish banking market, yes. Yeah. That's true. And, uh, and there has been, a, uh, let's say, a, a strategy, not a, a common strategy by all banks, but one major bank, the Swedbank, the largest savings bank, actually started this process 10 years ago, and the other banks followed just a few weeks afterwards. They start the same kind of strategy. And I mean, the total figure of electronic payments is very close to 1 billion in Sweden a year. Um, the amount of checks is uh, less than 0.2 million a year. Okay. Fine. So uh, mm. clearly you've made great strides in moving society towards uh, electronic payment systems. And yeah. uh, I can understand why. I think uh, the more businesses and uh, personal customers in the UK that, that use electronic payments, as long as they can be sure of security issues, um, the better. 
Yeah, there is definitely a strategy within the banking industry, and there is a, a demand from customers and authorities as well to make safe and efficient payment methods in our country. Okay, I'm now joined by Mark Bowerman, who works for APAX, which is the association that represents uh, the UK banking sector in terms of payments and clearing issues. Mark, welcome to Small Biz Pod. Hello. Could you just tell me why it's taken the UK banks such a long time to agree to giving up the float and speeding up the electronic payments system? Well, it's all about the uh, the business case for implementing this and also uh, making sure that something like this is, is customer-driven. What we have in the UK in 2004 is a situation where uh, there were 4.8 billion automated payments last year and only 7% of those were made up of telephone and internet banking payments and, and standing orders. So although that figure is now going up, what we're doing by uh, implementing or setting up an implementation group to decide what technical route we're going down and then taking two years to implement this system. By having this system, system come on board in 2007, we're preparing for the needs of the UK economy tomorrow, but we're preparing for it today. Uh, but surely small businesses and indeed personal customers might uh, adapt or adopt electronic payments more willingly if they knew that they were going to be quicker. Well, certainly, and, and that's what uh, the trends are showing. Um, check use is declining quite dramatically, and more of us are now banking online and actually making uh, banking transfers online. Um, there are more than uh, 15, million, 15 million of us that uh, bank online, and, and more than half of those people, we actually make uh, banking transfer payments online. So, as I say, those numbers are going up, um, and numbers of checks are declining quite dramatically. They've gone down about 40% over the last 10 years, and they're forecast to go down 40% again over the next 10 years. Obviously, at the moment, the banks are making money out of the delay in electronic payments, which, to me, seems like a, a reason for slowing down the process. Uh, 2007 is the target. Uh, why can't it be done now? Well, what we need to do is look at what technical specification we're going to choose, and that's what the implementation group is doing over the next six, over the next six months. When we've chosen that technical specification, it then has to be implemented. And what we need to make sure is that the system is robust, resilient, cost-efficient, and, of course, protected from fraud for customers and banks alike. Now, we want to make certain that the system meets all those criteria from, from day one. And to do that, we estimate that it's going to take about two years to implement a system of that nature. If we, if we were to set up something quickly, it probably wouldn't be right, it wouldn't meet customer needs, it wouldn't meet our needs. So we want to make sure that we're doing this thing properly, and that's why we anticipate it being ready in 2007. So what is the... Already, we already have an electronic payment system. Are you saying that that isn't up to scratch to allow payments to be made on the same day? Well, the system that, that uh, the uh, telephone and internet payments currently go through is the, uh, the BACS clearing system, and that is set up to act as a three-day cycle. And that's uh, precisely what we're looking at, is to make that system faster. We can't actually 
make that particular system faster. We have to build a new infrastructure and all the banks and building societies that want to uh, uh, adapt to this new faster system have to upgrade their systems as well. So it's about building a, a whole new platform and updating the, the, the myriad of banking interfaces that connect with it. Right, okay. Um, now, checks are also been a, a long-standing issue, and whilst I know it's one of the greatest myths uh, in the banking industry or outside the banking industry that, that banks make money out of checks, I know they don't uh, in terms of a float, um, Sweden, for example, um, pays checks on the day that they're paying into a, into a bank. Um, why is it not possible for the UK to adopt a similar system? Well, it's, it's not as straightforward as it sounds to, to make direct comparisons between us and Sweden because the, the, the two countries are very different. They've got very different systems. Um, Sweden has uh, uh, a lot less banks handling much lower volumes. Um, and banking as a whole is, is much different in the UK and Sweden. And, uh, you know, for, for instance, um, the, the, the customers in Sweden expect to, to, to pay for a lot of the quicker alternatives that they have. Um, what, we are, what we do know is that the Banking System Task Force is going to examine uh, the check clearing cycle. That's uh, coming up on its agenda from October of this year and then they will be reporting next summer on the check-clearing cycle. So when can we anticipate a quicker check-clearing cycle being established in the UK? Well, we need to, to see what the Payment Systems Task Force recommends. Um, I mean, our, our own um, experience is that the, the business case for updating uh, the, the, the check-clearing cycle is getting less and less because of the numbers of, of checks that we're using. They peaked at 4 billion in 1990 they were down to 2.1 billion uh, last year that's that's almost halved in number and by 2014 they're going to be down again to 1.2 billion and you talked about business case a couple of times both in relation to electronic payments and to check clearing um you're talking about the business case for banks presumably Yes, that's correct. I mean, you, you mentioned yourself uh, that, that the float that um, the banks make uh, money on, um, with uh, not on the checks, but on the uh, on the uh, um, the payments that go through the banks clearing system. And, and yes, the I mean, the OFT itself calculated that that float that, that that the interest that is made on that float is only less than a penny per week per account, and those figures. Um, are quite tiny in comparison to the the operating costs of the system. So, so although yes, the, the the banks do make some some money from that, it is quite significantly less than the costs for operating that system, and equally quite significantly less than uh, UK banking profits. Well, the, the, I, I think they're two separate issues. Um, that the banks are, are providing the the service, the the infrastructure and the operating costs of providing that infrastructure far exceed the money that they make from the float. So there you go. Change is coming. Uh, we can look forward to that. It'll make our lives easier as small businesses. But uh, it is coming rather slowly, and you, you have to wonder whether or not uh, the banks have a, a real incentive to make the change. 
bearing in mind that in certain circumstances uh, they may not want to invest the money or indeed risk losing uh, some income from interest. But anyway, I think we better move on. The show's already over 43 minutes, so one of our longest shows. But uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, As usual, very keen to hear your comments or your MP3 comments if you want to send in an audio file. Uh, Usual address, uh, alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. Equally, as I said earlier in the program, if you want to Skype me, that's an internet telephone system. Just look up www.skype.com for more detail. My um, Skype name, as it were, is Alex at alex-smallbizpod. So uh, I look forward to hearing from you. All that is left for me to do is to introduce a, a beautiful, relaxing piece of music from Rob Weston, again taken from the excellent Electromancer site, And this is really to calm you down in case your bank is irritating you. It's called Circadian Rhythms. (laughs) 